And if you have your Bibles, please open them to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. This is our second book in the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark. If you've spent any time growing up in the church, whether you were a small child in children's ministry or you've had the blessed privilege of serving and working in children's ministry, you're no, you, you would know that there's certain jingles or songs that we teach our children to remind them of the truths of God's Word. One of the most famous ones, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is And it is certainly true, Jesus loves the little children. This is what we'll see here in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of God. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that we can come together to sing your word, to read your word, and now to sit under the preaching of your word. May your spirit illuminate this text. May our minds and our hearts be open to receive your truth and live it according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where are we in Mark's gospel? This is chapter 10. Jesus is continuing his ministry in the region of Perea. He has left Galilee. He is making his way south to Jerusalem. There there are great crowds at this time, for the time of the Passover is drawing near. And Jesus is making his way to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It is interesting because this will be the last Passover that Jesus takes part in. And he himself will be the Passover lamb as he goes to Jerusalem to offer himself as a sacrifice for many, even the little children. And so what we have here in Mark chapter 10, we're coming off the previous section where Jesus is teaching on marriage, family, divorce, remarriage. And then this section here on children. It fits nicely together. And what we will notice here is that Jesus is teaching in these short few verses, he's teaching on the countercultural reality of being a follower of him. And it is the disciples, once again, who will show us in this passage they are on the wrong side of things concerning their actions and attitudes towards children. Jesus will show us that he values even the least important members of society as they did, as they viewed them in the first century. 
So I want you to notice with me in verse 13 that what we are introduced to is the wrong attitude towards children in this passage. Look again with me and follow along in verse 13. We would read, and they were bringing children to him. We have to ask the question, who is they and where are they going and what is happening here? We must enter into this scene here. The they of this passage, no doubt, are parents. And the parents are bringing their little ones to Jesus. The word here, the pation, which is young child, it can mean anywhere from 0 to 12. But if we were to look at the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, as they would give us this account as well, Luke records that they were bringing infants to Jesus. So what we can notice here, that they, parents, are bringing small children, infants, maybe anywhere from the, the smallest of sizes up to maybe four years old, and they are coming up to Jesus. We have to ask the question, why? Why are families lining up to see Jesus in this region of Perea on the east side of the Jordan River? Well, they think of him as a holy man, and they want the holy man to come and to bless the children. We would notice here, verse 13, they bring them to Jesus, and it says here that he might touch them. Well, Matthew provides a little more explanation of this, and Matthew says that he would lay his hands on them and pray for the children. I want you to think for a minute about the perspective of these parents. As they are lining up in these in the first century, there's Jesus is teaching in the area. Large crowds are making their way down for the Passover. And the parents come with their littles, and they go up to the holy man. Think of them as the, the perspective as, as guardians. I know for me, I do not just bring my children or let my children go up to just anybody. That's probably not wise parenting. But for the parents to do this, to line up and want to bring their children, their infants, to Jesus, hardly even knowing him. Jesus is the traveling phenom of the day. This Jesus of Nazareth, this man who has done mighty works and he's, he's done a lot of these, this healing ministry. Nobody knows the true identity. I mean, Peter has confessed it, but the crowds know there's something special about him. Though none of them would say that he is the, necessarily the savior of sinners, not at this point. But it reveals, of what, reveals much of what the common people thought about Jesus. We know what the Pharisees and the scribes thought of him. A blasphemer, someone who was taking away their, their spotlights. But what do the crowds, what do the common people think of him? What do the parents think of Jesus? So much so they're trusting him. They would bring their children to him. Think of the nature and the countenance that Jesus would have had. The overall persona of Jesus. Jesus is warm. Jesus is trustworthy. He's not standoffish, folding his arms like many of us do when we sit and listen to sermons. No, he's trustworthy. He's warm. He's approachable. He has an inviting countenance. The parents want to bring their children to Jesus. You know, this time of year, if you were to walk through the mall, you see a guy in a red suit. He's usually sitting at the center of the mall, and there's often this long line of people that are waiting with their children to go and see this figure. Children there are excited. Some are nervous. Parents are wanting to take pictures. 
And then there's always that at least one mortified child. <laughs> and that child is thinking, you are asking me to go sit on this stranger's lap? I don't know the man. And he's going to talk to me and I have to talk back to them? Certainly that child is thinking, not a chance. They begin to scream. You know this scene. You've seen it. Parents are trying to calm them down to take this fake picture. It's all staged event anyways. You've seen it. You've probably, maybe you were that child. I don't know. You walk by and no doubt you see the scene occurring in the middle of the mall and maybe you're even secretly judging. Why would they make their children do that? Well, what we have before us right here is the exact opposite of that scene. You don't see any mortified parents or children freaking out or wondering or being scared. No, there's a draw to Jesus. The families want to come to him. They are lining up, children, families, and all. The problem that we have here in this passage is not scared children, but we have the secular-minded disciples. Notice what the disciples did in verse 13. As families are lining up to bring their little ones to Jesus, we read, the disciples rebuked them. This word rebuked, literally, they criticized the families. They reprimanded moms and dads and even young ones for trying to come up to Jesus. It is like they are saying, I don't know what you're doing, but do you see Jesus? He's a little busy right now. He can't be bothered by small children and infants. This isn't a time to line up and get a selfie with Jesus. The master cannot be bothered by babies. He's got bigger, more important matters to deal with. So please, go away. Clearly for the disciples' children were not a high priority. There was a calloused attitude in the first century concerning children as well, especially in the Hellenistic society and in those days, the disciples would have certainly been influenced by their cultural context. There was a papyrus letter found in Alexandria dated roughly June 17th of the first century B.C. And it was written from a husband to an expectant wife. And it read this, quote, If it is a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. There was very little value for children and reverence for life. There was a bit more in Jewish culture, but nonetheless, the children were looked at as the lowest members on the society's ladder. And so what we have here in verse 13, this wrong attitude that the disciples have, they are literally preventing children from coming to Jesus. No doubt they've clearly forgot the nature of Jesus' teaching. In Chapter 9, you can leave and look back there. Chapter 9, verse 37. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus loves the little children. And so what we have here is the wrong attitude. The disciples see the children as bothersome. They see the children as annoying. Time wasters lacking any significant value. It's fine if they're seen, but they can't be heard. Let me just make an application right here. We do not judge Jesus based off of his disciples, back then and now. 
And so the disciples, as they're having this attitude of shunning the children from Jesus, they rebuke the families. Well, they turn around and receive a stinging rebuke from Jesus. They find themselves on the end of a rebuke because Jesus will demonstrate for us here the right attitude towards children. Whereas the disciples say, go, Jesus says, come. Notice with me verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This word indignant, there's no way around it. Literally, Jesus is angry. It's, it, literally, this means that Jesus was angry at what, what appeared to be unfair treatment. This is the, the righteous wrath of the God-man. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you messed up? And someone gives you the look? Oh, you do know. Children, when you do something wrong, you know you shouldn't. Mom or dad gives you the look. We've all got that look at some point. There is no one in here without sin. You are either giving the look or you've gotten the look. And in most cases, we do both. Married couples, you know it too. She looks at you and she doesn't need to say a word. I got it. I can only imagine the look on Jesus' face when this event is taking place. Jesus gets wind that the disciples are over there sending away families. And he, and he looks out with these piercing eyes and he looks at Peter and he looks at James and he looks at John. What in the world are you doing? You see, in this moment, the disciples are doing the very opposite for why they have been called to be followers of Jesus. They have been called to bring people to Christ, not send people away. We can be a very poor disciple if by our actions and attitude we send people away from Jesus. That's what they're doing. And it's as though Jesus is saying, the parents got it right, you got it wrong. Oh, how many disciples in this room right now, we need to hear this. What kind of culture are we creating in the church? Do we have a culture that invites families, invites children? Do we welcome them? We embrace them? We point them to Jesus? Or do we have the attitude of the disciples? Are we a help or are we a hindrance to the little children? Notice with me here that Jesus says three things that reveal his attitude towards children. And these are so important. First, he would say in verse 14, let the children come to me. Let's observe this is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. This is a command that he gives to his disciples. Literally what Jesus is saying here as he looks to his disciples and says, let the children come to me. He's saying to them, abandon your position. You need an about face here. You've got it wrong. Leave your post. Jesus invites children to himself. We can also see from this phrase, Jesus embraces the children. Jesus loves the children. So first, he says, let the children come to me. Second thing he would say to them, do not hinder them. Again, this is not a suggestion. It is a second imperative command. So now what we have here is back-to-back -back commands. 
He could have just said it once and that was fine. But he strings together two commands to, to show forth the force of what he's trying to say. One is the positive, let them come. One is the negative, do not stop them. Do not prevent them. Do not be an obstacle to children. You see, the disciples are forbidding access by their attitude and their actions. And we have to ask, well, why? Why? And Jesus gives us this answer here. Look again, verse 14. To such belongs the kingdom of God. This is a significant statement. This is a statement that has great theological significance. You know, there's a, um, there's a phrase we like to use called semper reformanda, which means always reforming. That means as we come to Scripture, as we come to the Word of God, we do not read our thoughts in there, but we let the Word of God reform us, to change us, to grow us into the likeness of Christ. Our theology is to be deepened and, and come flow from the Word of God. Well, here, this is an important phrase that is worthy to pause and consider the theological significance of what Jesus is saying. And I have to make a confession to all of you that I have gotten this wrong throughout the years. I have often referred to children, usually mine, as monsters of iniquity. I have used the phrase vipers in diapers. And while I believe that is true in the sense in the sense that they are sinners, in the sense that they are guilty of original sin, in the sense that I've observed it after five children, this is not how Jesus speaks about children. You will never find this in all of Scripture. This is language that we have imposed because we take total depravity. We might read Romans 1 through 3, and rightfully so, all humanity is in this state. This is not how Jesus treats or talks about children. I refuse my confession to ever use that language again concerning children. They are, yes, they are not born regenerate. They, have, they are guilty of the sin of Adam. They are guilty of original sin. They have possessed that. They are guilty of sins of omission, commission. But we must be careful with our language. And we must bring our speech in line with what the Word of God says. Furthermore, I believe that this text teaches us about a special status that children have. Small children concerning eternal life. Now, I would not go as far to infer infant baptism or anything of that nature, but I do believe where one side might go here, there's been largely in independent Baptist circles, and there's been this idea that we give birth to these pagan heathens, and we spend our whole life trying to Christianize these heathens. And yes, there is a truth that we are to train and teach the children, but they are not destitute pagans. I think it is helpful to think when we think about children born into Christian homes. They are born Christian. They are not Christians. For everyone to be a Christian, you must come to Christ, repent, and believe the gospel. But there is a special status that children born into Christian homes have. I would also say to where much is given, much is required. 
How many faithful testimonies have we heard from the baptism tank? Have we just heard throughout the years that start out something like this? I was born into a Christian home. Those are to be common. But maybe I went through this phase or this challenge of my life. I really had to wrestle and I had to own the faith for myself. Yes, that is true. Nobody gets to heaven because their parents are Christians. God has no grandchildren. Everybody must deal with saving faith personally. But we must recognize a distinct status that Christians have, that are are children born into the families, new covenant families. Furthermore, that's the theological significance. There's also pastoral significance concerning this passage. When the absolute worst happens, when the baby dies, whether it be in the womb or whether that be outside of the womb, you can go here to the teaching of Jesus. To such belongs the kingdom of God. It is a question that is asked by many grieving parents. What happens to my baby? Will I see my baby again? I will tell you with conviction, you will. I believe that the scriptures clearly teach that babies that die go to heaven. When David's son died, he says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David believed that he would see his son again. Some argue he's talking about the grave. Furthermore, when God gave explanation to Jonah of why he sent him to a pagan city, to Nineveh, he says at the end of the book of Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? What is he talking about? Young people, infants, children, babies. God shows his compassion on saving a city from destruction because of the children. Nonetheless, this position is not outside of the long-accepted tradition of the church. Actually, forever, children dying in infancy, has been, going to heaven, has been the position of the church for 2,000 years. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 10, verse 3. Elect infants in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. The same is true of every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So let me encourage you, if you've suffered the loss, whether it be a miscarriage, a stillborn, a small child, that child is safe in the arms of Jesus. Because the atonement of Jesus is effective to all whom God has applied it to. You must remember that. The atonement is not applied at some time and space. Jesus died, and for those whom he died will be saved. Now let's go back to this text here. I want you to notice here, Jesus gives a stinging rebuke to anyone who would minimize the significance of a child. In fact, what he will do here now is he will turn the whole thing upside down on his disciples. Look at verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples, instead of stopping them, you need to become like them. One commentator on this passage, on what it means to receive the kingdom of God, he says this, quote, to, to receive God's kingdom is to be God's willing subject, gladly embracing the radical values which Jesus came to instill, end quote. And Jesus says, do this like a child. In essence, he's talking about childlike faith. When we think about childlike faith, think of my little Natalie, about to be two years old. You tell her it's nap time, and the word is nuggles, means snuggles. And so we, we, we ask her if, she, if she's ready for nuggles. And she, without hesitation, asks for mom, and then goes upstairs. I try to get snuggle time. But um, she goes upstairs, and with just, just trusting faith, she's sitting there on the rocking chair, just with her head laying on her mom's chest, not as care in the world, safe in her mother's arms, trusting, not worrying about what's happening in the Middle East. She's not worrying about her financial situation or what the future holds. She is safe in the loving arms of her mother. All is well. This is childlike faith that she has. But we think children are very trusting. We know this. They're willing to accept the reality of the way things are and what they are taught. And what Jesus is saying here is that as a child is willing to accept, believe, and trust in the reality of God's kingdom, thereby embracing the values of that kingdom, so should you. Look to the children as an example of saving faith, of trusting faith. So instead of making them more like you, Jesus is saying, be more like them. And to the disciples, this was radical. This is, this is radical in the first century. And in many ways, it's radical to us now. Learn from a child what it means to trust. We've been burned. We've suffered with brokenness. We have scars, we have calluses, and all of those things do a really good job of making us afraid to trust. The children don't have that, and they're willing to trust. We need to lay aside, and it's, oh, I know it's hard, but we need to battle through the brokenness of our world to receive the kingdom in a trusting way. The other night, it was during bedtime, I was asked, what would happen if bad guys came into our house tonight. So I tell them what I always tell them. I would call Barrett. <laughs> he is the standard of measurement in my house. They're not bigger than Barrett. And I said, no, they're not. No, what I told them was it would be their worst nightmare, not the children the bad guys because it's my duty to keep them safe they took what I told them they accepted it they believed it and they trusted me because they went to bed and nobody got up again and the next morning they were safe you see it's that childlike faith when they heard it they believed it they accepted it they trusted it and the question that is before us right now this morning Concerning the kingdom of God, have you received the kingdom of God as a child? 
Are you God's willing subject? Well, you say, well, I, I don't know. I, I, that's, that's still abstract. That's, that's, that's out there. That's conceptual. Let me do my best to try to simplify what this means. Let's deal in concrete terms so a child can understand. Who is Jesus to you? Are you trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which is the good news that Jesus came and died to save sinners. Rising again on the third day. Are you trusting in this message? Romans chapter 3 verse 10. There are none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. We have all sinned for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally, this verse means missing the mark. Everybody has, has had a target, and the target is the glory of God that we are all to be aiming for. And like an archer standing back and pulling the bow, we release the arrow, and we cannot hit the target. It's not that we miss the bullseye. We can't even put a mark on the target. And all of our striving in life is pulling the arrow back, hoping that the better we do, we will hit the target. We have missed the mark. And no matter how many arrows we fire, we will continually miss the mark. But there was one brother who came 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, fired the arrow dead center on the target. The only one to make the mark, to hit the mark, to live for the glory of God. The perfect one, born of the Virgin Mary, lives the sinless life and dies as a payment for our sins. Sins he did not commit. We read in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As we read in our scripture reading even earlier in John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, when asking the question, have you received the kingdom of God? In order to receive the kingdom of God, you must receive the Son of God. So the question before all of us today, are you this day trusting in Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about a general Savior who Jesus saves people and Jesus is a, is a Savior of sinners. We must be through with the generalities. We must get to the personal nature of Jesus as Savior. Can you say honestly, it was for my sin that he died? That Jesus is my Lord? That Jesus is my Savior? My God? My life, my hope, not the hope of the nations, the hope of the church. Those are true. But is he yours? He is my righteousness. He is my only hope in life and in death. It is upon the merits of Jesus that I will go to heaven. Not because I've done good. Not because I prayed a prayer. Not because I went to church. Not because I tithed. Not because I was baptized. Not because of anything of that nature. But because of him. Because of what Christ has done. Because all of my righteousness is filthy rags. And all I can do is cling to his righteousness. Are you trusting in this Savior? Have you received the kingdom of God? Have you received this Jesus? Let me tell you, it is so easy. A child can do it. Because Jesus invites the least to the greatest. So, if you are in this room, God has brought you here this day. 
to hear this message. If you have not repented, if you have not turned to Christ in saving faith, trusting in Him, what prevents you? Do not allow intellectual hang-ups, faith-seeking understanding. Let's begin the journey. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Lay hold of Christ by faith. Receive the kingdom through the gospel. And be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts in your life, God will bring to completion in your life. He will see it through. He will hold you fast. Nobody has come to Christ and been accepted by Christ and placed in the kingdom of God and ever fallen out of it. There's only one side, and it's all entrance. So what we see here, and this is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is for all who come. Jesus says this is as much for children as it is for you. Come to him now. Come to him this morning. Jesus shows us here in this passage the right attitude towards children. And then in verse 16, we would see the right action he takes towards them. Look again with me here, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let me just give a few high-level comments on this one beautiful verse. Maybe one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. We see the loving embrace of the Savior for children, for the babies. Notice with me first, he says, and he took them. That means Jesus welcomed them. As he told his disciples, stop hindering them, bring them to me. Jesus welcomes the babies. And he doesn't just welcome them from a distance. No, in his arms, Jesus embraces them. Think about this for a moment. In Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one who spoke worlds into existence. He's the word of God made flesh. He was there at the creation of all things when God spoke things into existence. It was through Christ. He is the the image of the invisible God. He throws the stars up and says, let them be there. And he's holding babies. He's holding this sweet infant in his hands. Oh, if there's ever a picture of meekness, it is here. The Savior of humanity makes time to hold the babies. Politicians, pastors, and people virtue signal all the time. They want to hold a baby so others can see them holding a baby. They want to do this so that others might think sentimentally about them. This isn't the case here with Jesus. No. What Jesus is doing here is just living out who he is. Jesus shows his heart for children because of his great love for them. Notice with me, and then he blessed them. Jesus prays for the littles. Laying his hands on them, he values them. He makes time for them. You will always make time for what's most important to you. And so when we think about application here of this passage, understand this, just as Jesus shows his heart for children in these actions, we must do likewise. You think for these children, what a day it was. Some may be too young to even remember. God held them. 
And that this moment here in this passage, they are at the safest place they could possibly be in the loving embrace of Jesus, held close to his heart. We as the body of Christ, the church, the hands and feet of Jesus must strive with all of our being to make this place the safest place for children as well. Where they can come to know and the loving embrace of the Savior through his people. Are we like the disciples or are we more like Jesus in this passage? This is the right action towards children. To love them. To serve them. To train them. So, lessons. Jesus loves the little children. And so should we. The danger is in our society, there's a devaluing of children. Our culture idolizes youthfulness, but despises children. Having a large family and you go out in public, says it all. I would also argue that it is anti-Christian to not love children. It is against Jesus' teaching. Wherever Christianity has flourished, in any society, any culture, wherever the church was alive and healthy, children have always been protected, valued, and nurtured. So, let us conclude with this. We are to love children. We are to be patient with children. It does not mean that we are to be overly permissive. It does not mean that we let them run around like crazy after church. No, they should be disciplined. Because we love them. We discipline children because we love them. We respect them. It's so hard to tell someone to respect your elders when you won't respect them either. So we are to respect them. We are to train them. We are to show children that they are valuable. They have a special place in the heart of God. We are to bring them to Jesus. So what is your attitude towards children? Do you love them? Do you tolerate them? Do you value them? Are we more like Jesus? Or are we more like the disciples? May we be a church that invites children, embraces children, and loves them in the manner of Jesus. Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are a blessing and a gift from God. There's another song, and we're taught to sing when we're little that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And that is from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for children. We thank you for the stewardship and the gift that they are. Lord, may we be those that nurture, protect, discipline, respect, and bring children to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.